The book of Judges ends with this verse, the very last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and that sounds like hell. Everyone just doing what pleases him, what seems good to him. And in fact, it was. It was a dreadful situation that the people of Israel found themselves in at the end of the book of Judges. The history is important. So God's people were slaves in Egypt for a long time, 400 plus years, and then God rescued them. He brought them out by the hand of Moses, and you remember the stories, 10 plagues, parting the Red Sea, eating manna in the wilderness, wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin. But then, at long last, God brought the people of Israel into the promised land. He gave them the land flowing with milk and honey. He blessed them in every way. He gave them rest from all of their labors. He gave them rest from all of their enemies. God blessed them. And yet, they did as people do, and as the people of Israel especially tended to do, they followed their own hearts. They followed their own bellies. They did, each of them, what was right in his own eyes, and it was dreadful. That's the story of the book of Judges. It's God sending a Savior, somebody to rescue his people, a judge, to save them from the trouble they have gotten themselves into. And then, again, they get themselves into more trouble. And so he sends somebody else to rescue them, and again, more trouble. That's the story of the book of Judges. It's like reading the same story over and over and over again. It shouldn't surprise us, though, because that's the story of this world. The same story again and again. People following their own hearts, doing what is right in their own eyes, and getting what they deserve for it. And so the book of Judges ends in that way. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and this is a setup for what comes in the books of First and Second Samuel. Now you know First and Second Samuel best for their main character, King David. King David, who was a man after God's own heart, a man who trusted in God, who would be a good king, who would establish a kingdom from whom would later come Jesus himself. But the book of 1 Samuel begins with this setting, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, and especially in the temple, in the sanctuary, in the place where the people were to offer their sacrifices. There in Shiloh, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were supposed to come and bring sacrifices and receive gifts from God, blessings from God, and instead, the priests in that tabernacle, the priests in that sanctuary, were saving the best portions for themselves. They were hurting people around them. They were being covetous and lustful and greedy, and everyone else was following after them. What the people were doing at that time was pretending as if God wasn't there. Although they were in the sanctuary, although they were in the tabernacle, although they were in the place where God had made his name to dwell, they pretended as if God wasn't there. They did what they wanted, what was right in their own eyes. And in fact, they wished that God would stay away. Kind of like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as they hide from God. They wished that he would stay away. And they believed that he wouldn't act. That he wouldn't do anything about it. You know how this is if you've spent any time around kids or if you've ever been a kid yourself. But you do things putting your parents to the test. Wondering if they're watching you, hoping that they're not. 
And if they are, hoping that they won't put their money where their mouth is, hoping that they won't, in fact, act. That's what the people of Israel were like, like a bunch of little kids testing the limits, pretending like their Heavenly Father wasn't there and hoping that he wouldn't act. The story changed dramatically, however, when the people of Israel found themselves confronted by an enemy, the Philistines, one of their most common enemies in the books of First and Second Samuel. The Philistines were attacking them, and the people of Israel were used to winning. They were used to winning because God always fought for them. All throughout their desert wanderings, all in the face of Egypt, all in the face of all of their enemies, God fought for them. And occasionally, they would lose a few in battle, but more often, they wouldn't lose anyone because the Lord was on their side. And yet, now, in this situation, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, the Philistines attack, and the people of Israel were defeated. 4,000 destroyed, 4,000 killed in a single battle. Now the people of Israel wondered, what's going on? Where has God gone? Why has he left us alone? Why won't he fight for us anymore? So they came up with a bright idea. They said, we have the Ark of the Covenant. You know what happens when the Ark shows up. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. You take the lid off the Ark and everybody melts. They thought to themselves, this is great. We've got the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord goes with the Ark. We're going to carry that Ark out into battle and then God will have to fight for us. Then God will have to be on our side. You see, they had changed their minds. Previously, they were hoping that God wasn't there pretending that he wasn't, hoping that he wouldn't act. And now, when God seems to be absent, they can't understand where he's gone. Why isn't he here fighting for us? Why won't he act for us now? Why won't he be on our side? I know what we'll do. We'll make him. We'll make him serve us. So they carry the ark out into battle, and the story goes quite as you might imagine. The people of Israel were defeated again. But worse than just simple defeat, the ark of God was stolen. The Philistines took it away. Not really stolen, of course, because the Lord decides all of these things, and so it's much more like this. God left the people of Israel. He left them behind. Each man did what was right in his own eyes, and they wanted God not to be there, and so he left. He went away and spent some time among people who cared not one bit for him, He wreaked havoc among them. They took the ark, the Philistines did, and they set it in their temple to some sort of a fishy serpent god. And every morning when they got up, their idol had fallen over because the ark of the covenant couldn't be in the presence of an idol. And finally, on the last day, the idol fell over and the hands fell off and its head was severed lying on the ground. And the Philistines said, we've got something worse on our hands than we ever imagined. So they sent the ark away, sent it back, hoping that the people of Israel would take it back. You see, when the people of Israel decided that they needed God, it was too late. Their hearts had already abandoned him. Their hearts had already gone after other gods. Their hearts had already gone after other things that they loved, each man doing what's right in his own eyes. And so now, now, God was not there to fight for them. That's the warning that Jeremiah is preaching in our Old Testament lesson. 500 years later, God has returned to his people. He is present among them. The ark is with them. There's a temple. There are sacrifices. There's a king on the throne. God is with his people. And again, they're pretending like he's not there. Again, they're pretending as if he won't act. You heard what Jeremiah said. 
Behold, you trust in deceptive words. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered pretending as if I'm not actually here? Pretending as if I won't actually act? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Jeremiah's prophecy came true about the people of Israel. They kept on hearing and not believing. They kept on committing these abominations, sinning and pretending as if God wasn't there and pretending that he wouldn't act. And so, in the year 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed. And the Babylonians ran off with the precious things that belonged to the people of Israel and the people themselves were carried into exile where they could not worship anymore. And then they lamented and they wondered, where has God gone? Why has he left us? Why won't he fight for us? Why won't he help us? It's the same story again and again. It's the same story that Jesus is telling in our gospel lesson. 500 some years later, Jesus is wandering around Judea and Galilee and even among the Gentiles preaching the good news that God is there, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that peace has finally arrived, peace in heaven and on earth, glory to God in the highest. That's what the angels sang. And yet, the people pretended as if God wasn't there. They acted as if God wouldn't do anything. And so Jesus came to the city, drew near to Jerusalem as the days for his death approached, and he wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Would that they had known on that day that God was with them, that he was closer to them than than he'd ever been before, closer to them in flesh and blood, in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself had humbled himself, taken on the form of a servant, walked among them, took on their sicknesses and their sin. He was bearing it all for them, If only they had known the time of their visitation. But they did not. They acted as if he were not God. As if God were far from them. And as if God would not do anything to them. And so they crucified him. Even saying these dreadful words, his blood be on us and on our children. That is testing the limits. That's testing the boundaries. And not 40 years after Jesus died on the cross and rose again, Jerusalem was destroyed again. They had rebuilt the temple. In the meantime, they had rebuilt the temple and the priesthood was there and they were offering sacrifices. And again, God leveled the temple. The Romans destroyed it. There was a siege around the city and the atrocities that were committed against the people of Israel and that they committed one against another were dreadful. Cannibalism sacrificing their children, doing anything just to get a piece of bread, wondering, why has God left us alone? Where has he gone? Why won't he act and save us? You can't have it both ways. That's the message that Jesus is preaching. You can't one day wish that God would not be here so that you can do what you want and live the life that you want and do what is pleasing in your own eyes and pretend that God won't act. You can't live that way one day and then the next day wonder where God has gone and why he's not there helping you. You can't hold it against God when you've wished him away and he goes 
away. You can't hold it against God when you ask him to stop speaking to you, when you ask him to stop preaching his law to you, and then he stops. You can't hold it against God when he has done everything for you, and you will not have it, and then the end comes. You can't hold it against God. That is, however, what the people of Israel wanted to do. It's dreadful. And they missed this most crucial, most important point. You see, they thought of God as someone who comes and goes. They thought of God as someone like you and me, who is occasionally there, there when needed, there when wanted. And they did not reckon with the fact that God is always there. God is always there, but he's not always there in the way that the world fears. Merely as someone who is judging and ready to dispense punishment and wanting to whip you into shape. That's not God, how God is there. He's not there as an ornery, grumpy, short-on-sleep dad who's just losing his patience all the time with you. That's not how God is with you. Instead, he is with you always as a loving father, as a kind and generous father, as a patient father, who, like the father in that story of the prodigal son, will gladly give you everything that you ask of him, even if you plan to waste it even if you plan to wander off into a far-off country and squander everything that belonged to him, he is the one who is willing to give it. He is the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is the one who is patient for generations and generations and ages and ages. Look at how long he was patient with the people of Israel, calling them back again and again and again. Look at how long he has been patient with you as you struggle with sin as you strive against temptation, as you fight your flesh, as you fall, as you are weak, as you are troubled, as you grieve, as you doubt him, look at how he has been patient with you, even now, today, again, calling you back, preaching peace, present with you for goodness and blessing. You can't imagine how unbelievable it is. Really, we've heard it too many times for it to sink in anymore, probably. How unbelievable it is that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Why should God weep over anything? And here he is, Jesus, when he sees the city that he loves, the people that he loves, the sheep who have wandered away, he's not bitter towards them, he's not angry, he's not vengeful. Instead, he weeps because he loves them. Those tears were not just for Jerusalem, those tears were for you. They're the tears of a beloved friend. The other time that's recorded in the Gospels of Jesus weeping, you know this, is when he saw his friend Lazarus in the tomb for four days. Jesus drew near and was brokenhearted that his friend had died. Even though he knew that he would raise him, even though he knew that he would bring him back to life, Jesus still wept because he cannot bear to see his friends suffer. He cannot bear to see his friends choose evil instead of good to go after other gods to their own harm. He cannot bear to see us suffer what the people of Israel suffered, hemmed in on every side by enemies, overthrown and raised. That's not what he wants. And so he comes and he does not stop at weeping. He does not stop at just shedding tears for us. But he sheds his own blood. He gives up his life in the hopes that you and I will live and not die. That you and I will know the things that make for peace. 
They are not the things we desire. They're not doing what is in our own heart. If only I could have my own way, then finally my life would be at peace. If only I could have what I want, then finally I could be content. No, it's this. It's the blood of Jesus that works peace for you because it conquers sin and death and the devil and destroys all of the cursedness in your heart and gives you a new heart. That's what makes for peace. And so today, again, again, Attend to this fact. Pay attention. Open your eyes and listen to this fact that Jesus is here. Now is the time of your visitation. Today, Jesus is among you. Do not hope that he would not be here. Do not wish him away. Do not go home today and return to all of the sins that you've committed before. Do not go home today and again wish that Jesus would leave you alone for a little while so you can enjoy yourself. Do not wish him away, but know that he is here He is here to help you especially when you need him. After all, what God wants from you is not sacrifices. It's not sacrifices of bulls or oxen or even your own flesh and blood. What God wants from you is that you would acknowledge that he's here and call upon him when you are in need. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer you. He wants you simply to trust in him, to believe his words of promise, to believe his words of forgiveness and life to hang on his words, as those people were doing. That's the glory of this story. If you read the Bible from beginning to end and you never paid attention to Jesus, you would think this is a terrible world we live in, and you'd be right. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. But Jesus has come to break the cycle, to break into your hearts, to give you peace, to give you hope, to give you joy, to forgive all of your sins, and so rejoice that your Savior loves you, rejoice that he weeps over you, and rejoice that one day he promises to wipe away tears from every eyes, his own included, as we all live together with him eternally in his kingdom. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.